Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshawbible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Our reading today is from Isaiah chapter 37, verses 14 through 20. Hezekiah received the letter from the hands of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord." Before we do dissect the passage, I would like to speak a personal word on prayer and praying simply because praying is very personal and relational. When you and I pray to God, God is involved in our prayers and we are conversing with him through our prayers. Prayer and praying isn't something we should, however, dissect, but rather do. When someone says, well, how should we pray? Jesus gives us this template or model in Matthew 6, but praying is really just praying. There are some simple ground rules to prayer, and we'll see that inside the study and praying. But for the most part, the best prayers are the ones prayed. Our look at prayer in this study is to consider prayer and praying as to what it looks like in its biblical context, Isaiah 36 to 39, and story. And this does necessitate we consider the historical and literary context for our study. But the intent of this study is to call us to pray and prayer, and thus I would invite us right now to pray. So let us pray. Our Father, we thank you in Jesus. We can approach you without worry of rejection. What an amazing idea that we can come to you in this moment without fear of rejection. We thank you that Jesus is our advocate and the Holy Spirit is interceding in our behalf right now. The needs of your people are many. Uh, You know each one of our needs. We come here with, with struggle, with brokenness. We come with anxiety, with concern, and you know all this. And you invite us to pray for your wisdom and strength as we struggle in this life. And thankfully, all struggle, all of our struggles shall cease in the life to come. Our desire this morning is for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds, so that we can see Jesus and hear the voice of your Spirit in and through the study. Guide us into truth. May we not confuse, but encourage and clarify. And we ask this in the name of our advocate, Jesus. Amen. When you look at this section, and I do have to do some preliminary study. We do this often just to make sure we're understanding the study in its context. When you look at Isaiah 36 through 39, it's a historical bridge. It's a literary bridge. It's taking us from the first 35 chapters where the, the Assyrian Empire is predominant to the next section, which is Babylon, in 40 through 66, 
when you read 36 through 39, you realize that 36 and 37, you have the Assyrians besieging the city of Jerusalem. 38, Hezekiah is sick. He prays to God. God heals him. And then he shows in 39 all the riches of Jerusalem to the Babylonians. And then you take over with the Babylonian Empire. Uh, Perhaps a little clearer way of looking at this is that in 2 Kings 18, which is a parallel to Isaiah 36 and following, Hezekiah pays tribute to Assyria. And they have this dynamic or this relationship going on in the first 35 chapters of Isaiah. But even after paying tribute, Assyria besieges Jerusalem, and that's where we find ourselves in 36 and 37. Isaiah prays for deliverance in 37. He prays for healing in 38. God answers both prayers. And there are certain aspects of what Isaiah does in his praying and prayers that I think is important to note. After God heals Hezekiah in chapter 38, he shows the Babylonian emissaries the wealth of Judah, and that's going to take place shortly with the people of Israel. But the highest occurrence, and I find this somewhat interesting, the highest occurrence of the word trust in the book of Isaiah are found in these chapters, chapters 36 and following. And it's predominantly in chapter 36. And throughout chapter 36, Rabshakeh, who is an emissary or representative of the empire, of the Assyrian empire, it's a title, it's an office, Rabshakeh is the one who is using the word trust. So the highest concentration of the word trust in Isaiah is Isaiah 36. And it's coming out of the mouth of a pagan. But throughout Isaiah, we have this idea of trusting God, trusting God in the midst of all that is taking place in our lives. God calls his people to trust him when confronted by the threats and brokenness of life. The other thing that you have in your possession is a a half sheet that gives you the plot line of this section, and I'm not going to go through it with you. I'm simply pointing it out. And I would encourage you to see how Isaiah 36 through 39, especially as historical narrative, it's not poetry, so you don't have parallelism in it. Now you can when there's this poem or prayer by Isaiah, but the predominance of 36 through 39 is this plot line, and I would encourage you on your own time to take a look at it just to show you that there is this larger story in which the prayers of Hezekiah are being prayed. The other parallel that is of interest to us is that in Isaiah 7 and 8, Ahaz is aligning with Assyria, and he's being pressured, and here Hezekiah is being pressured as well. But Isaiah's response and Hezekiah's response stand as contrast inside of the book itself. Now we come to the particular topic. Our passage is historical narrative. Historical narrative isn't meant to be normative. So simply because we read of it in the Bible doesn't mean it's going to be a repeatable pattern. Historical narrative simply tells us this is what happened during this period of time. And it's being accurately recorded for us. In the narrative, though, there can be timeless principles that show themselves throughout the Bible. So we see these patterns repeating themselves, not just here in Isaiah 36 and following, but elsewhere in the scriptures. And it is those principles that we are going to focus on in our current study. So when you look at our passage or study this morning, there are five things that we want to see. The first is the setting. Then what is the initial response? We know that the city is under siege by the Assyrians. What is the initial response given to King Hezekiah? And then the place of prayer, what happens when Hezekiah 
is meeting this threat, then you have the character of God that's reflected in the prayer that Hezekiah prays, and then sola de gloria. He wants the prayer answered in order that, in order that for this purpose, all the nations will know that Yahweh is God. You have all these competing gods that are present inside that culture even today. But Hezekiah prays the prayer and asks that the prayer would be answered in order that all the surrounding nations will know that Yahweh, Yahweh, remember the covenant personal name of God, all the nations will know that Yahweh is God. But let's begin with the setting itself in our study. One of our initial considerations when we pray is Hezekiah's first response to included others in his grief and in distress simply because others were also impacted by the circumstances. So you have this national threat. The Assyrians are outside the walls. They are pressing on the nation. And you have this, this scene taking place. And people together are praying. It's not simply an isolated prayer that Hezekiah prays. Others are involved in this. And the occasion for prayer is often provoked by hardship and shock. Look at Isaiah 37, verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. And then he describes this day of distress as children have come to the point of birth and there is no strength to bring them forth. It's a lady that is great with child that has no strength to bring the child forth. That's how bad the moment is. The occasion for prayer, when you and I pray well, is when we are pressed by hardship and shock. The Assyrians have invaded. This has been going on for months and years and besieged Jerusalem. In chapter 38, Hezekiah is sick unto death. The moment provokes deep and passionate prayer. And the occasions for such passionate praying are many. When we look at a family of families such as ourselves, and we look at all that takes place as a family of families, we could list a myriad of items that press on us. And those things that press on us create a day of distress. And in the moment of that distress... What do we do? What did Isaiah do? What did the people of Israel do? What did Hezekiah do? They prayed. And that's exactly what we do. Our prayers in those moments don't have to be flowery. It simply help us, Jesus. And I want to believe I've been in those moments when all I could say was, help me, 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 help me. If you ever find yourself in chronic acute pain, that's all you pray. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. Help me, Jesus. That's where they find themselves in this moment. It is a day of distress. But notice the initial response that they get in this day of distress. It says in verse 6, I'll begin with verse 5, When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, the king, Thus says Yahweh, Do not be afraid. It's one thing to say it, isn't it? It's another thing to experience emotionally that absence of fear. But in the midst of our day of distress, when everything seems to be imploding and collapsing around us, 
What we need to hear in that moment is this simple statement. Do not fear. Do not fear. Do not fear. Isaiah immediately sends back to the king, do not fear. God always calls us not to fear. It is in the moments of greatest fear we hear the words of greatest assurance. Isaiah 37, verse 6, do not be afraid. And now listen throughout Isaiah, which is interesting. The highest concentration of that statement is found in chapters 40 through 66. But in chapter 10, verse 27, therefore, thus says the Lord God of hosts, O my people who dwell in Zion, do not fear, chapter 10, do not fear the Assyrians. Chapter 44, verse 8, do not tremble and do not be afraid. Chapter 40, verse 9, get yourself up on the high mountain, O Zion, bearer of good news, lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news, lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, here is your God. That is why, we'll see it in a moment, but why you and I, as the people of God, need not fear, because we are the people of God. God is the Lord of hosts. He is the one who has all of this. Isaiah 41, verse 10, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not look anxiously about you, for I am your God. Isaiah 41, verse 13, Do not fear, I will help you. Isaiah 41, verse 14, Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you. 43, verse 1, Do not fear, for I have redeemed you. 43, verse 5, Do not fear, for I am with you. 44, verse 2, Do not fear, O Jacob, my servant. And finally, Isaiah 51, verse 7, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, a people in whose heart is my law. Do not fear the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings. It has been noted multiple times by many students, the most repeated command throughout the Bible is do not fear. If you and I were to step back for just a moment and think about those things right now that are pressing upon us, that have created for us personally a day of distress, What you and I need to hear right now is do not fear. We might say, well, that's easy to say. It's hard hard to experience emotionally. But the one saying it to us isn't me. It's God. God is saying to you, do not fear. Do not fear. Every problem we face must pass through the lens of Yahweh's sovereign oversight. Nothing comes to us that does not pass through him. Whatever that greatest fear is, whatever has created for you the day of distress, God's assurance in every heartache and crippling threat is simply this, do not fear. Do not fear. In those initial moments, Hezekiah was assured that God would take care of him. Although Hezekiah hears reassuring words, the Assyrians are still outside the walls. The Rabshakeh, like the serpent, seeks to cast doubt in the minds of the people, and in their hearts. And the serpent wants us to believe God is not different than all the other gods and that he will not take care of you, that he cannot be trusted. It's the same thing we heard in the garden and we hear now. Is God loving? Is God kind? Does God care about you? And the answer we know from the scripture is absolutely. Absolutely. Notice what Hezekiah does then. In verse 14, notice the place of prayer. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. 
And Hezekiah went up to the house of Yahweh and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. Hezekiah went to the place where God was, and he poured himself out before the Lord. The word house used in our passage occurs often in Isaiah. It can refer to a household or a dynasty or even a family. And it can also refer to the house of one's God, not even Yahweh God. But in our passage, it refers to the temple that was in Jerusalem that was the dwelling place of God. And Hezekiah took the threat that came from Rabshakeh and he went into the house of the Lord. He went to the, where God was and he placed this before him. There's two things that I think are true about praying in our prayer. First, God knows what we need before we ask. When you and I pray, we're not informing God, right? His omniscience guarantees that he knows everything that's going on in our lives right now. And all those conversations that you have in your head or all those times when you are talking out loud and no one's listening, God is. So when you and I pray, we're not informing God. We're not educating God. God knows what you need before you ask. And what's awesome, because the Spirit in Romans 8 intercedes in our behalf, he takes what we say and he makes it so that the Father receives it. But God knows what we need before we ask. That does not eliminate the fact that we pray. That's what Isaiah Hezekiah does. And the second thing, even though he goes to the house of the Lord, you can pray anywhere at any time. God's omniscience and God's omnipresence, however, are not excuses for not formalizing prayer or identifying this location as the place of prayer. I always find it uh, encouraging and necessary to note that this local gathering, this church located here, this church is part of a temple legacy. What began in the garden continues to this day, and we are a symbol, a representation of that temple. This is where God dwells. This is, as Jesus would say, a place of prayer. So praying and prayer is a natural part of what we do. We intentionally put it in our studies We intentionally make it a part of our ministry. We are a praying people. So the local gathering as part of the temple legacy is to be marked as a place of prayer where we go to encounter the living God and to bring to him our collective need and declare to him our dependency. I pray because I am dependent on God. If God does not act, I am done. Help me, Jesus. Knowing that God is here and does here empowers me to pour myself out in his presence. And I can do that before you as his people. The fourth idea in our passage is the opening confession by Isaiah concerning God's character and position. Notice verses 16 and 17. So it's a day of distress. All of us have experienced the day of distress. We are experiencing the days of distress. God's word to us in those moments is, do not fear. We can take what we have and bring it to the people of God. We can bring it to the church, and we can pray openly about these things. Unashamedly pray. But notice what Hezekiah prays. Hezekiah says in verse 16, O Yahweh of hosts, and he's got this impregnated statement. It's incredibly dense. O Yahweh, his covenant name, his personal name of hosts, 
God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and hear, open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. The reason why God calls us not to fear is because of who he is. It isn't that our problems simply disappear. I wish to God they did. When I pray for healing, I am expecting and fully knowing that God can heal. I know what God can do. I just don't know what God will do. But we have a God that can. Thus we pray. Although the statement in verse 16 is tightly packed, notice what it says. Hezekiah speaks of God's preeminence in heaven. O Lord of hosts. He speaks of his covenant relationship to Israel, the God of Israel. He is a God who keeps promise. His transcendency, he is above the cherubim. The cherubim is one strata of angelic beings, and he is above the cherubim. His singularity, you alone, his royal preeminence of all the kingdoms of the earth. And his creatorship, you are the one who has made heaven and earth. The statement that Hezekiah prays is theologically dense. The Rabshakeh's problem was thinking Israel's God was like all of the other gods in the surrounding nations. When Hezekiah begins to pray, he says, Incline your ear, O Yahweh. Hear, open your eyes, O Yahweh, and see. Listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Yahweh, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. The petition works from the premise that God does hear and God does see. Isaiah speaks of God being alive. Although we do not see him nor hear him audibly, this does not mean he doesn't see us or hear us. He contrasts the dead gods of the nations with the living God of Israel. That's the God we have. I mean, I know we come here, this is a formality sometimes, it's things we do, but we come in the presence of God. He hears us right now. He sees us right now. And the prayers we pray, he hears Hezekiah prays for needs. He asks God in verse 20, deliver us, deliver us. Verse 20, so now, O Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. Hezekiah's prayer was for deliverance from his immediate threat. Are we less pious because we ask for deliverance? No. Matthew 6, verse 13, this is how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Deliver us, deliver us from this evil. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from this evil. Matthew 26, verse 39, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass before me. Deliver me from this hour. In 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, the Apostle Paul prayed three times, Remove from me this thorn. Do you have a day of distress? Then ask God to remove it. And God says to you, in your day of distress, do not fear. 
And why? Because I am God. I am God. God invites us to ask of him what we want and or need. There is nothing wrong with petitioning God. Now, here's what's, uh, for me, it is, is incredibly, I'll use the word awesome. I was trying to get a better word than awesome, but awesome. The difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is the conditionality of the petition. When you read Isaiah 37 and 38, in 38, when Hezekiah is sick, he says, look what I have done for you. I have kept your law. God, in response to that, heals Hezekiah. That praying is conditional. It's conditioned on the conditions of the vassal treaty. Hezekiah did his part. Now he expected God to do his part. The same is true with his deliverance from the Assyrians. Thankfully, we are in the new covenant. Our prayers are not conditional. The only condition we have is Jesus. We are not in contract as the nation of Israel was with the vassal treaty. We are in Christ. And folks, that's a big deal. Therefore, our praying is markedly different than old covenant praying. And I'll note this in a moment. But notice how the prayer ends in verse 20. It says, So now, O Yahweh our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Yahweh, that you alone are God. That's really the ultimate end of all our praying. Hezekiah's prayer was for the exaltation and glory of God. We see this several times in Isaiah. I'll read only two references, Isaiah 2, verse 11 and 17, because it says the same statement. The Yahweh alone shall be exalted in that day. The end, and this is what's fascinating for me, the end of our prayer and praying is not us, but God. Our praying is to be theocentric, God-centered. This does not negate human need. And we see that in chapter 38 when God heals King Hezekiah. But the ultimate end of all praying is for the world to know there is a God who is alive and is transcendent and is preeminent. God is the one who acts. The New Testament repeats the same refrain over and over again. And let us notice just three of those references. In John eleven four, when Jesus heard that, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, in order that the Son of God might be glorified. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Whether therefore you eat or drink or whatsoever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 11, That every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism states it in this way. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. It's easy to get caught up in just giving God an itemized list of our prayer requests. You pray for these things. But we see that Hezekiah didn't just make a plea for help. His ultimate goal was that everyone would see the hand of God at work and that God would be glorified. He prays to this end, not just for immediate deliverance, but in order that God would be glorified. At the end of our days, the Lord's model prayer speaks to this same truth. Father, it is your kingdom that is to come. It is your will that is to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's the same type of theocentric praying. God answers prayer. God did answer Hezekiah's request. God did 
destroy 185,000 Assyrians. That's a lot of people. And they spared Jerusalem from falling. Now the Babylonians would come and take them away decades later. But in this moment, God was delivering them from that judgment. God did answer Hezekiah's prayer. But the answer isn't always what you want to hear. Think of Joseph. Think of Jesus. Think of the Apostle Paul. Think of every New Testament martyr. Think of the Apostle John. I'm sure they prayed for deliverance, but God did not deliver them from their immediate situation. And I'm sure in those moments they equally heard, do not fear, for I am I am God. We love stories of answered prayer, but not every prayer prayed gives us what we want. But every prayer prayed gives us what we need. How should we pray for healing under the new covenant? Well, I want to put this in context. First of all, I've already noted how Isaiah 36 through 39, they're still inside the vassal treaty, the law of Moses, the Mosaic Code. That is a conditional contract between God and his people. They do A and God would do B. And that's what you have when you read this. It is the context of a vassal treaty. You and I are no longer under that old covenant. We are inside of a new covenant. We are not under contract. We are in Christ. So how do we pray? Our in Christ condition guarantees we have an unconditional and ever-present advocate who intercedes in our behalf no matter what. So our praying is not conditioned on us. Our praying has one condition. Are you in Christ? That's the difference between Old Covenant praying under the vassal treaty conditions and in Christ praying under the new covenant. And there's a world of difference between those two things. And I'm hoping you hear what's being said. One of the questions we ask when we pray is simply this. Is New Testament praying, our prayers, is New Testament praying dependent on my character and conduct? Or is New Testament praying dependent on Jesus's character and conduct? Now, you can answer one of three ways. Yes, no, or maybe. We sometimes, and I grew up in this idea that if I, if I do the right thing, God will hear me and answer me because of my character or conduct. Now, I've come to understand over the last several decades that my character and conduct does matter in horizontal, but in the vertical, it's all Christ. You might not understand what I'm saying, but what I just said is a big deal. Big deal. Old Covenant praying is conditional under the vassal treaty with human high priests and mediators. Under New Covenant praying, it is unconditional. It's part of the royal gift. It's a divine high priest, and he mediates in our behalf. That's a big deal. New Testament praying is dependent on the character and conduct of Jesus, and to that, I say amen. Praying in the New Covenant has one condition. Are you in Christ? If so, then five things, at least five things are true. You have an advocate before your father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. When you and I approach the father, we are not approaching him based on our conduct or character. We are approaching him based on the conduct and character of Jesus. He is advocating in our behalf. That's a big deal. You might deceive yourself in thinking you're a, little, you're a good little boy and girl, but you're not that good. 
The only one good enough is Jesus, and you are coming in him and through him to the Father. That doesn't mean you can go out and live a life of crazy. I mean, have at it if you think it's going to pay off in the end. But I'm telling you, in the crazy moments, God is still advocating in your behalf. Not only is he your advocate, and it's his merit that you are received, you have a spirit who intercedes in your behalf. I know you've had the experience where you pray and you don't know what to pray. Like, what am I supposed to say that sounds like impressive? How can I impress God with my praying? Let me assure you, God is not impressed. You know what I'm saying? Don't worry about it. You pray and the Spirit intercedes in your behalf. You have an advocate who stands between you and the Father, and you have an intercessor who takes what you do and makes it presentable to the Father. That's awesome. Not only is he your advocate and an intercessor, but you can draw near with confidence. I don't have to enter the throne room of God. Right now, folks, we're in the throne room of God. You can come with confidence. You don't have to come with fear or trembling. Hebrews will not only say with confidence, but with boldness. And then John will add without fear. Without fear. Have you ever been fearful? When I was younger, where I grew up, there was a gap between the garage and the house. And, and, you know, back then it looked like it was 10 feet. And I'm sure it was only maybe four or five feet. But I would climb up on the garage and I would jump over to the house. And I had no fear. And then when I was on the garage, I'd jump down to the ground. I had no fear. And I remember later on in life, after I had two kids, I jumped off the house roof. And my pelvic girdle felt like it went up to my head. And I thought, you know, I'm not going to do that again. And then we have a two-story house, and, and several years back, I got up on the roof, and, you know, I mean, it's a little bit awkward, but not too bad. And then recently, I got up on the roof, and I scooted on the roof on my butt like I was a dog going across the room. You know what I mean? And I thought, I am never getting on this garage again. I am never going to get on this house again, ever. There was this fear that was almost paralyzing. I don't have any of that fear when I'm with God. I have no fear with God. And you say you're being arrogant. No, because I understand who my advocate and intercessor are. I know that I brought nothing to the table in the vertical. Nothing. I can approach him without fear. Without fear. That, for me, is an amazing, amazing idea. Because the Son and Spirit are interceding in your behalf, you can rest. You can rest knowing his answer will be gracious and righteous and wise. Every time you pray, The Spirit is interceding, the Son is advocating, and the prayers you prayed are being answered according to His graciousness, His righteousness, and His wisdom. So when you and I pray, and we look at Hezekiah and we say, okay, how did he pray? Are the things that we can, in principle, carry over? Yes, but the big thing is he's praying under the old covenant. You and I are praying under the new covenant. The answer to your praying does not depend on you, but on Jesus. And I I hope that sinks in. Because you can never do enough to somehow please God. Only Jesus does that. God's most common answer are wait and know. Wait and know. You're praying, and how do I want all my prayers answered? The same way I prayed them, don't I? Hezekiah prayed that God would heal him, and God gave him 15 years, and what did he do? He gave away the kingdom. We always have to be a little careful how we pray. 
But God's most common answers are wait, wait. And why? Because I am wise, I am righteous, I am gracious, so just wait, just trust me, wait and know. And why know? Because your ways are not his ways. You think, well, I would love to win that $2.1 billion lottery, right? And I know that I would give at least 10% of the church. Why didn't God answer that prayer? God does answer your prayers as they align with his will. And people who always claim to get yeses from God, you know, God is always answering my prayers, they're snake handlers and charlatans. They're not manipulating God. They don't have some special pipeline through their conduct and character. God is doing what is best for you and for his glory. The pattern for our praying is Jesus in Matthew 6. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. Our pattern for prayer is the Apostle Paul as he prays for deliverance from his thorn in the flesh. And what did God say to Paul? Wait and know, but I'm going to do something for you that you didn't ask. In your weakness, I'm going to show you my strength. But we can pray with assurance that God hears us in Jesus. And the Spirit brings our prayers in an acceptable manner before the Father. God calls his people to trust him when confronted by the threats and brokenness of this life. As the people of God, we get to pray and we should pray. And you and I in Christ have an advocate and intercessor before the Father. And therefore, let us pray. Let's pray. Father, we ask you to work in us and through us to those around us for your glory. Father, there are so many people right now praying that you would intercede in their behalf and save them in this day of distress. And they cry out to you and you say to them, do not fear. The prayers we pray will not always come the way we want them, but they are the way you want them to be. We are gathered here today because you are a God of promise and your word to us shall not fail. And we believe this. Where we are confused, we ask that you'd bring clarity. And where we are hurting, we ask that you'd bring hope. And where we are broken, we ask you to bring healing. Thank you for always seeing us. Thank you for always hearing us. And now may this Holy Spirit take the weak words and bring them to you in an appropriate manner. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.